88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is a cover to cover Stone Show with Jennifer Stone. Stay with us. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today, today is August the 4th, 2009, and last night I found I had nothing on my desk but eulogies, elegies, memorials, remembrances. Oh, yes, the world is in mourning. We never catch up. I think of... The beautiful Lady Cory Aquino in her little yellow dress, uh, a woman almost exactly my age. Uh, I think it's funny to, to think, it seemed to me only yesterday we had that revolution in the Philippines. And uh, that woman, more symbol than substance maybe, but still, for six years, she was a symbol of hope and revolution. Uh, I remember the line she said, uh, she said there are uh, many ways to run a government, but there's only one way to treat people. <laughs> I think of, yes, I think of her uh, struggle. I remember in the middle of the revolution, I heard on the news someone cried out, We have taken Channel 4! And I thought, you know, that's like storming the Bastille. They figured out that once you got your your hands on the media, once you took over a TV station, uh, you were in charge. Oh, tell me about it. That's what we need, folks. A major network. Uh, I think of Corey Aquino... uh, as a symbol, a symbol of that soft power that most of us hope for. We think of Obama's New Age approach and even Hillary Clinton over there saying, well, she says boys will be boys, but she keeps saying, grow up, fellas, you know, act like adults. Uh, You're being childish. And then, of course, (laughs) they put her down furiously and say she isn't up to the job because... She doesn't know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to threaten to bomb them into next week. That's what uh, a secretary of state is supposed to do, threaten them. Uh, blood sport, you know, the sort of thing. Uh, I don't know about soft power. Um, I've been reading this article in Harper's. I want to spend some time on it today, the one that compares Barack to Hoover. It's very discouraging. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, the, the point uh, the point made by Kevin Baker 
in the July issue of Harper's is that um, Roosevelt, back in the Depression of the 30s, he had more help. Um, Barack doesn't seem to have the uh, force behind him that he needs. Uh, it's so grim. It's so distressing. Uh, let me see. Yes, eulogies, eulogies here. Mm-hmm. Uh, here it is. Back in 1929, the journalist Annie O'Hare McCormick was writing about Hoover's inauguration. That's March 1929, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she, yes, um, Kevin Baker compares this to uh, January 2009. What is that? 80 years difference, yes. Um, Annie O'Hare McCormick writes about Hoover. Quote, We had summoned a great engineer to solve our problems for us. Now we sat back comfortably and confidently to watch the problems being solved. Almost with the air of giving genius its chance, we waited for the performance to begin. Baker goes on to say, genius got its chance less than eight months after Hoover was sworn in when the stock market collapsed. And then she goes on to say that uh, Hoover was uh, cool, you know, he's a good liberal, but uh, wasn't good enough. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't know. It's difficult. Um, this article insists that Barack is probably the one who understands better than anyone else what we're up against. But, uh, oh dear, the absurdest advice that he's getting. Let's see. Let me just jump into this. Uh, I'll save my old bits of Frank McCourt and... So many people this week we lost. Yes, Molly Ivan's birthday is August the 6th. Oh, yes. 6th August, folks, is the anniversary of Hiroshima. Talk about a memorial. Uh, anyway, we'll save those for another time because I listened to the news the last couple of days and I'm terrified about this, uh, this health plan we're not going to get. <laughs> <laughs> not going to get it, folks. Not going to get it. Uh, let me see. Uh, Kevin Baker says uh, in his article, Barack Hoover Obama, the best and the brightest, blow it again. Says the story of the real Herbert Hoover reads like something out of an Indiana Jones script with touches of Dickens and the memoirs of Albert Schweitzer. This is, of course, the parallel to Barack. Orphaned and penniless by the age of nine, Hoover was raised by an exploitative uncle who considered him more chattel than son. He had no illusions about the America he grew up in. Writing years later, uh, Hoover wrote, As gentle as are the memories of the times, I am not recommending a return to the good old days. Sadness was greater and death came sooner. Removed from public school at 14 to work 
as his uncle's office boy, Hoover nonetheless learned enough at night school to make the very first class at the newly opened Stanford University, where he studied geology and engineering. He paid his own way by working as a waiter, a typist, and a handyman, and eventually running a laundry service, a baggage service, and a newspaper route. Unsurprisingly, his favorite book was David Copperfield. <laughs> I have a footnote here, yes. Remember the Cider House Rules by John Irving. I'm beginning to think that's a book we need to read here on KPFA late at night. It's about... Uh, women's reproductive rights and John Irving pretty much made the case in the Cider House Rules anyway after graduation uh, Herbert Hoover ran mining camps he scouted new strikes around the globe it was an adventurous life once he made a small fortune by following an ancient Chinese map and tiger tracks into a moribund silver mine in Burma by the time he was 40 Hoover was worth $85 million in today's dollars. He retired from business to take up public life. The ideal of service, he would later write, was no burden on the striving entrepreneur, but, quote, a great spiritual force poured out by our people as never before in the history of the world. Hoover had long lived up to his ideals, Caught in the siege of the Western delegations in Peking during the Boxer Rebellion of 1900, only Hoover and his fearless wife Lou cared enough to sneak food and water to the Chinese Christians besieged elsewhere in the city. He first came to national attention after the start of World War I, when he led the effort to feed the seven million people of occupied Belgium and France. He worked for free, donated part of his own fortune to the cause, risked his life repeatedly, crossing the U-boat-infested waters of the North Atlantic. Hoover's post-war relief efforts rescued millions more throughout Europe, especially in the Soviet Union. It's unlikely that any other individual in human history saved so many people from death by starvation and want. Now, we're talking here, folks, uh, I'm interrupting. We're talking here about Herbert Hoover, the guy that we love to, uh, what is that, dismiss as the loser, you know, who failed to rescue us from the Depression in 1929-30. Anyway, I'm going on here with uh, Kevin Baker's article in the... Uh, July issue of Harper's uh, Barack Hoover Obama. Yes, the best and the brightest. Blow it again by Kevin Baker. Right. Okay. Questioned about feeding populations under Bolshevik control. Hoover banged a table and insisted, 20 million people are starving. Whatever their politics, they shall be fed. Another footnote, there's Cory Aquino. Yes, there's only one way to treat people. Yes, first feed the face and then talk right and wrong, as Berthold Breck said. Um, now, in 1920, the article goes on to say, 
Many people in both major parties wanted Hoover to run for president, but he opted for the Republicans uh, as Secretary of Commerce under Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. He was a dynamic figure, tirelessly promoting new technologies, work safety rules, and voluntary industry standards. He supervised relief to Mississippi and Louisiana during the terrible 1927 floods. He advocated cooperation between labor and management. <laughs> Heartbreaking, isn't it, folks? Uh, we got a good guy here. Uh, anyway, after the crash, after the uh, stock market crash in 1929, uh, well, Hoover just thought that this, this sort of thing happened every five or ten years, uh, and it was understood that uh, they might last, you know, for a year or two. Uh, according to some economists, uh, these things kind of, you know, rose and fell, and uh, he figured that they would recover in a year or two, uh, Mere politicians were supposed to leave the outcome to the workings of the market. But Hoover, much like Obama, plunged right in with a response that was designed to rise above old ideological battles to effect a new partnership between the public and private sectors. Less than a month after the Wall Street crash... Hoover began what would be weeks of meetings at the White House with hundreds of key men from the business world. There, the president briefed them on everything he had done so far and urged them to cut as few jobs as possible for the duration of the slump. He also encouraged public and private construction projects. He signed bills recognizing the right of unions to organize and used the fledgling Federal Reserve both to ease credit and to discourage banks from calling in their stock market loans. Now, all of these projects, Hoover's projects, were anathema to old-line conservatives in Hoover's own party, such as Andrew Mellon, the tax-slashing Secretary of the Treasury throughout the go-go years of the 1920s boom, who offered the president the absurdist advice to let the market, quote, liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate the farmers, liquidate real estate. Cutting one of the main ties to the trickle-down wisdom of what was suddenly a previous era, Hoover eventually shipped Andrew Mellon off to serve as ambassador to England. <laughs> Send them abroad, yes. Anyway... The article goes on to say uh, there remained little immediate action that the president could take, hobbled as he was by the limits of a federal government that made up less than 4% of the GDP and by the reluctance of those around him to interfere in any way with the sanctity of the markets at what John Kenneth Galbraith would later skewer as no-business meetings. These key men of industry pledged their full support. Then they went home to slash wages and cut as many jobs as they could.
By the end of 1930, the gross national product had dropped by nearly 13%, unemployment shot up to nearly 9%, and over 600 banks had closed. The Democrats won a majority in the House of Representatives, but the primary response to the Depression, offered by their laconic speaker, Cactus Jack Garner, was a national sales tax designed to balance the budget. Liberal legislators in both parties were more sympathetic, but they welded little power. Okay, uh, deja vu all over again, folks. Read it and weep. Uh, I guess, what is that? Uh, what is it we used to say? History doesn't exactly repeat itself, but the people do. The behavior does. Yes, they went home and, you know, uh, cut the wages, slash the wages, cut the jobs, right? Uh, always the short-term view. Uh, Kevin Baker goes on to say that as the depression spread around the world, Hoover, like Barack Obama, towered above the squabbling suspicious leaders of Europe. Only Hoover, who had lived all around the world like Barack Obama, and also been part of the U.S. delegation at Versailles, seemed to understand the true threat the Depression posed to the global economy. Democratic forms of governments were under assault everywhere in the West, and especially in the Weimar Republic. Oh, yes, Weimar. A whiff of Weimar. <laughs> Still staggering under the indemnity the victorious Allies had imposed on Germany in 1919. Hoover sought to alleviate the growing world credit crunch by pushing through a moratorium on the repayment of Europe's considerable war debt to the United States on the condition that the Allies also forgave Germany its indemnity. Uh, it was an example of statesmanship at its most enlightened. And if any single U.S. action at the time could have prevented the rise of Nazis to power. This would have been it. Back on the domestic front, Hoover tried to organize national voluntary efforts to hire the unemployed, provide charity, and create a private banking pool. When these efforts collapsed or fell short, he started a dozen home loan discount banks to help individuals refinance their mortgages and save their homes, and he created an unprecedented government entity called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, authorized to spend up to the then astonishing sum of two billion. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation was a direct rebuttal to Andrew Mellon's prescription of creative destruction. Rather than liquidating banks, railroads, and agricultural cooperatives, the RFC would lend the money to stay afloat. Hoover had shown himself capable of the most pragmatic, far-reaching economic heterodoxy, a trait that would, in the end, 
carry him and the country into uncharted economic and political territory. That's what his, uh, his advocates said. Uh, on and on, practically the whole New Deal was extrapolated from programs that Hoover started. Indeed, Hoover had wanted and had said clearly enough that he wanted nearly all the changes that came about under the New Deal label. Uh, this is so frightening to know that uh, Herbert Hoover was doing uh, everything that he could, uh, everything that Obama is trying to do. But let's face it... Uh, <laughs> Oh, yes, the prevailing legacy of perception and understanding of economic theory wouldn't, yes, wouldn't let him get away with it. I guess, I guess, uh, history, history is not something that I have ever really understood. I keep asking why, why, why. Uh, I think it's because we got a mean puritanical streak and that we are sadomasochists. <laughs> anyway, uh, obviously, it was Roosevelt who was willing to, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, let's call it, let's call it shape-shifting. Shape-shifting, that's what he did. Uh, I think it's hard to explain uh, how wicked politicians uh, pull off these uh, pull off these things. I'm thinking, yes, Roosevelt took office imagining that he could bring all the classes of Americans together in a big, mushy cooperative scheme, but he was quickly disabused of this notion, and he threw himself into the bumptious give-and-take of practical politics. Lying, deceiving, manipulating, arraying one group after another on his side. A transit encapsulated by Howe at the end of his first term. <laughs> well, his outraged opponents were calling him a traitor to his class and he was gleefully inveighing against economic royalists, announcing they're unanimous in their hatred for me. I welcome their hatred. Anyway, uh, I'm afraid that President Obama, well, a little bit like uh, Bill Clinton, is into the art of the possible. He also wants to be liked. Yes, why can't we all just get along? According to this article, Barack Obama, like Hoover in his time, is almost alone among politicians in grasping the magnitude of the crisis. What, of course, we know is that uh, the torpor among the Democrats uh, is causing him, well, I, I hope he can sleep nights. Um, he certainly looks as if he's doing his best, but uh, I think, well, let's see what else Kevin Baker has to, to say. He makes a long list of the cop-outs on the left. Um, you know, the Democratic old farts like Harry Reid. Obviously, um, Barack knows what he has to do, and he's looking around for the people to help him do it. Uh, let's see. Baker goes on to write, 
One might have assumed that the adrenaline rush of regaining power after decades of conservative hegemony, not to mention relief at surviving the depredations of the Bush years, or losing the vestigial tail of the white southern branch of the party, would have liberated congressional Democrats to loose a burst of pent-up imaginative liberal initiatives. Instead... We have seen a parade of aged satraps from vast, windy places stepping forward to tell us what is off the table. Every week, there is another Max Baucus of Montana, another Kent Conrad of North Dakota, another Ben Nelson of Nebraska, huffing and puffing and harumphing that we had better forget about single-payer health care, a carbon tax, nationalizing the bank's funding for mass transit, closing tax loopholes for the rich. These are men with tiny constituencies who sat for decades in the Senate without doing or saying anything of note and who acquiesced shamelessly to the worst abuses of the Bush administration and who come forward now to chide the president for not concentrating enough on reducing the budget deficit or for trying to do too much as if he were as old and indolent as they are. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, yet another small gray man from a great big space where the tumbleweeds blow, he seems unwilling to make even a symbolic effort at party discipline. Within days of President Obama's announcing his legislative agenda, the perpetually callow Indiana senator, Evan Bayh, came forward to announce the formation of a breakaway caucus of 15, quote, moderate Democrats from the Midwest who sought to help the country make, quote, the changes we need, but make sure that they're done in a practical way that will actually work. A statement that was almost zen-like in its perfect vacuousness. Even most of the Senate's most enlightened notables, such as Russ Feingold of Wisconsin or Claire McCaskill of Missouri or Sherrod Brown of Ohio, have had little to contribute beyond some hand-wringing whenever the idea of a carbon tax or any other restrictions on burning coal are proposed. President Obama, with a laudable respect for the separation of powers, has left the details and even the main tenets of his agenda to be worked out by these same congressional Democrats. This approach... Looks like an exercise in democracy drawn from his days as a community organizer, the sort of strategy that helps a neighborhood decide whether it wants a, a health clinic or a youth center. What he doesn't care to acknowledge is that in the case of the United States Congress, he's dealing with a neighborhood where maybe half want a health clinic. And the rest are holding out for grenade launchers and crystal meth. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that uh, this article is the best example, at least those of you who are 
school teachers and want to help your students understand uh, how the good guys can mess things up. Uh, he goes on to explain uh, how Franklin Roosevelt reaped the creative support of even progressive Republicans. Uh, I still don't know what magic he had. I think it's because uh, back in 1930, 1932 actually, um, we really had no choice. This time people still seem to think we don't have to make change. This has been Jennifer Stone. We'll be back on the air Thursday morning. At 8.20 till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of the Yo soy Silvia Redesa. Yo soy Julieta Kismi, aquí con La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, bringing you noticias en español and in English. Música, poesía, soy Nina Serrano, La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8. My name is Oscar Mania, La Raza Chronicles, here at KPFA 94.1 FM. Yo soy Vanessa Bohm, aquí con La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m., bringing you noticias de la raza community. Yo soy Nicté, Crónicas de la Raza, todos los martes de 7 a 8 p.m. This is Maya, aquí con la raza Crónicas, every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m., worldwide at kpfa.org, and in the Bay at 94.1.